hidden behind closed doors. This is Beer and B-Movies. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael. Jason, what movie are we talking about today? Today, we're going to discuss 1958 High School Confidential. Michael, what are you going to be drinking while we discuss this movie? Uh, Today, we're drinking the American Lager from Great Divide Brewing. They're out of Colorado. I thought it'd be perfect with this movie. It's an American Lager. Cheers. I think it's something they would have been drinking in this era. Light, crisp, super drinkable. You can call it yard work beer, baseball beer. I mean, what are you, what's your take on it? It's a crisp, clean beer. I agree with you. This would fit this movie. I could see their parents sitting there drinking this beer as they talk about the horribleness <laughs> and the atrocities that come with drug use as they sip this. Absolute um, cat daddy. <laughs> I think we're copacetic on that. At the same time, I would think that this would be uh, the beer these kids would drink when they're at their road races for their different auto clubs that they have. But it's great. <laughs> it's exactly a summertime beer. I can sit in my backyard and have a couple of these. It, I kind of wish we had hot dogs. Another piece of Americana would fit in with this movie. Oh, just a bunch of <laughs> hot dogs and some relish. That would be great. So where's this brewery out again? They're from Denver, Colorado. Okay. This is a, a newer addition to their, their lineup. They do... A lot, they do a lot of great beers. This is a personal favorite. I've been drinking Great Divide for a long time. And uh, I think it was uh, 2019 they started doing an American lager just to have something in that genre. Yeah, and it's like this crisp, clean can, and it has great minds drink alike. Yep. I enjoy that saying. <laughs> no, it's it's good. And I thought I thought personally it went really well with this. It, it does. I put a lot of thought. Put a lot of thought in because I, I watch this movie a lot and there's a lot to think about. There there's, is. There's a lot to think about in High School Confidential. It's one of those juvenile delinquent movies of the 50s. I put this movie on the list. As we go through B-movies, we want to ensure that we hit on some of the genres of B-movies. During the 50s and leading into the 60s, there was this whole genre of teen movies. And they're broken out into different areas. Juvenile delinquency, rock and roll... Hot Rods, Melodramas, and Teen Horror Movies. I was looking for a movie that had most of those elements to it, and I came across this one, uh, 1958. Jack Arnold, who did a bunch of sci-fi movies from The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Tarantula, The Incredible Shrinking Man, he directed this movie, and it was produced by this gentleman named Albert Zugsmith, who um, he specialized in low-budget exploitation films of the 50s and 60s. This has a huge juvenile delinquency element to it. It's an anti-drug movie, specifically marijuana and heroin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because you're led to believe that that's the trajectory you take. And you don't have a lot of choice, because at one point a character does say, you know, I don't know any hophead who doesn't go on to the hard stuff. So this, it was a scare movie to me. Feels like a PSA. Throughout the movie, we have moments where the authorities pretty much address the audience about the dangers of marijuana going into your school, infiltrating your community. And I don't know if they were trying to be tongue-in-cheek at the time. I doubt it. I think it just didn't dawn them that there is parents who are drinking discussing the ills of drug use or at the end it's cigarette smoking is it's far better for you than drug use items that we see just as bad in terms of 
usage, um, overconsumption of alcohol, overconsumption of cigarette smoking, those aren't deemed as bad in this movie. It's marijuana and it's the gateway drug right into heroin and goofballs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the, always, the always enjoyable goofballs. <laughs> I want to quiz you because a big part of this movie is the 50s beatnik slang teen slang at the time. So I thought, Michael, I downloaded a bunch of 50 sayings and some of these are used in the movie. I just want to see if you know what some of these means. Bring it. Okay. <laughs> One they use a lot is, I sound you. That's, I hear you. Cut the gas. Stop messing with me or... Close. Be quiet. Be quiet. Yeah. A very popular one, which probably doesn't need to be defined, but dig. Yeah. <laughs> I understand you. There you go. Drag. It's a bummer. Flip. Uh, overreact. Close to get very excited. Uh, Don't flip out, you know. Get bent. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's still good. Blank off. Yeah, you know? <laughs> drop dead. Drop there dead, you go. Yes. Kitten, which is used a lot in this Girl, movie. Lay on. The opposite of lay off. <laughs> kind of like to give. You know, lay on me. You know, oh, lay on lay, some knowledge lay, on me. Yeah, give me okay. some knowledge. You know. <laughs> Can I talk about Russ Tam- Tamlin for a second? Lay it on me. <laughs> All right, Daddyo. <laughs> I watched this the first time with my wife. And as soon as Russ Tamblin, who plays a dual identity, ne'er-do-well high school student Tony Baker, but also police officer undercover named Mike Wilson. But when she saw that, she's like, oh my gosh, Russ Tamblin. Seven Brides from Seven Brothers. West Side Story. (laughs) I did know him from West Side Story. I've seen West Side Story enough. He's one of these people in Hollywood who's had a career as a child actor up until nowadays. And he had some really strong performance in the 50s. In fact, he got nominated for Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for Peyton Place in 57. Of course, West Side Story. Then he did The Haunting, Tom Thumb. In the 60s and 70s, he's he's not the young heartthrob anymore. And he did a lot of exploitation movies. I think he did Al Adamson's. He was in a couple of his movies. He returned to his major talent, which is dancing and choreography. He did make some movies for Fred Olin Ray in the 80s. Some people from our generation know him because David Lynch brought him into Twin Peaks as Dr. Jacoby. My wife was glued just because Russ Tamblin was in this movie. That's what kept her watching this. I like him. I think he does a great job. The other people that I want to point out is Mammy Van Doren's in this movie. Oh, and, yeah. And she plays Aunt... And you can't see me, but I'm doing quotation marks around Aunt Gwen. She was discovered by Howard Hughes um, the night that she was crowned Miss Palm Springs. And he dated her for five years and really launched her careers with some RKO movies. I think two other things launched her career, (laughs) too. (laughs) Yes, she was known as one of the three M's during this time period. These platinum blondes uh, like Marilyn Monroe and James Manfield. And yes, she appeared in Playboy magazine. And she's known predominantly for her figure. Then, of course, Drew Barrymore's dad. He plays J.I. He's the leader of the Wheelers Wheelers and Dealers. Yes. The worst named gang in the history of gangs. (laughs) Yeah. Just terrible. (laughs) You had mentioned something, and I think it's important to point out, because it also has to do with them trying to get every type of this teen exploitation type of film in this movie. It opens up with this classic music scene of Jerry Lee Lewis. Now, you pointed out something. I didn't know a lot about Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> he was a, just a deviant. I mean, 
<laughs> an alcoholic drunk. I mean, maybe this wasn't as well known at the time, but Jerry Lee Lewis was, he was not not exactly the person you would put up there and say, hey kids, this is what you should be like. Because Jerry Lee Lewis was pretty much everything that they were speaking out against. That opening scene where he's in the back of a pickup truck singing a song on a piano and it's driving through the school campus... Interesting opening. One An early things. music video. Exactly. <laughs> and it, it probably put butts in the seats because yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis, he was a hot property at the time. But yeah, it was just funny that on this campus, which looks like an Ivy League school, yeah. and just slowly driving through is this band with one of the biggest rock and roll stars of the of the time. We do have to say, a very white community. Nothing but white kids in their 30s. And, and everybody is dressed what I call, <laughs> still to this day, church clothes. Yes. So the men are in slacks and button-up shirts, and a lot of them are wearing ties, and the women are in full dresses and small little sweaters. They all look like they're 30 or 40 yeah. in high school. Exactly. <laughs> it was a very different time. <laughs> the opening, we're introduced to Tony Baker. There is a tell that he might not be, besides his age being off, that he might not be exactly who we think he is. When he gets in the car and he looks in the mirror and then he opens the glove compartment, pulls out an electric razor. Now, I shaved in high school. I never had an electric razor in my car. And this is the 50s and he's pulling one out with a cord. I don't know where it's plugged in. Probably the cigarette lighter. Michael, thumbnail the overall plot of this movie before we dive into the weeds and details. Tony Baker shows up in town. He's He was transfer from the north north side of Chicago. He comes. He's got a bad rap sheet. He's a troublemaker. He wants to take over the wheelers and dealers for some reason, hopefully to change the name. And then he wants to deal drugs. He wants to find a, a, to score some weed, and he wants to become a big drug dealer. He gets in trouble at school. The teacher, Arlene, she sends him to the principal's office, and we find out, we sort of get that, that she's a cool, quote-unquote, cool teacher, you know, because she understands kids and doesn't see them as the horrible things that everybody else seems to think. Very progressive. Yes. So she takes Tony. She's Tony goes into her classroom, makes a scene, calls her kitten. Super, super disrespectful. Whistles at her. Whistles at her and just comes on to her heavy and is totally disrespectful. So she's like, get out of here. So she's teaching history about Columbus. When they leave, J.I. gets up and teaches the class a history lesson about Columbus. And the whole thing... I bet it goes on for two minutes. And the whole thing is done in like a beatnik slang lingo about Columbus digging on the queen and we can all go, you know, look into infinity. It is it is a, just a marvel. It's a time capsule of that slang of that era. It's fantastic. So eventually Tony does take over the wheelers and dealers really easily. And they're a really lame gang, so I don't know why you'd want to take them over anyway. Like, three of them can't beat him up. And then he finds out J.I. is going to be his weed connection. And J.I., who really doesn't seem to care that Tony took his girl and his gang, he introduces him to Mr. A because Tony is not, he doesn't want to just deal joints. He wants to get big time stuff. Heroin. So, yes. Smack. <laughs> Goofballs. Goofball. H. So he wants to meet the big man, which is Mr. A. Then we find out Tony's an undercover cop. And you look back and you go, should have been more obvious. <laughs> and, and, he, and he does show up like day one. He's, he's like, I want to buy all the heroin. Yeah, like, five pounds. <laughs> <laughs> five, what's a buy five pounds? No, if it's, 
if it's marijuana or heroin, but he wants to buy five pounds. Five, of he wants to buy five pounds of weed, yeah. and then he wants to buy half a kilo yeah. of H. First day at school. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a way to introduce yourself. And we find out he's a cop. Every, everyone's happily ever after. Joan. Joan's a weed head. Depiction of people who smoke marijuana is hysterical because she's just climbing the walls when she can't get a stick. From Juki. Yes, from Juki. <laughs> and at the end of it, we find out that she she's kicked her habit. She now, and here's this is a direct quote, she confines her smoking to ordinary cigarettes. <laughs> Good for her. So, I she's mean, learned her lesson. <laughs> that's a, a rough outline. And yeah. by the way, within that whole thing, we have Michael Landon as the leader of the Rangers. Yes, Mr. Steve Bentley. Steve, nicest guy in the world. Steve Bentley. <laughs> like, he's like, he must be the captain. And he's wearing a letter jacket. He's the captain yeah. of the baseball team. Always trying to get Tony onto the side of the good. Always going, hey, do you want to join up with us? And He's an angel. He, oh, my goodness. <laughs> he is. He is. He, he does drag race. Probably if he wins, he probably gives the money to charity. Uh, <laughs> Steve, is, Steve is a nice guy. And he also, for some reason... He can be trusted to, to fight organized crime. At be, the last minute. <laughs> which we, we can talk about later. But he does, him and, him and the Rangers get recruited to help take down organized crime. That is a good synopsis of this did film. I, did I miss anything? <laughs> and well, then there's, there's Mamie Van Doren's wait, wait. ample bosom. Yes. I want to talk about Tony Baker showing up at school and this atrocious behavior that today, I mean, this is another thing, like today, that first, he had a switchblade, and the principal's like, give me that switchblade. He ends up getting that switchblade back somehow. In his first scene, he grabs a co-ed while walking to class. He whistles at his teacher, but the principal's like, you know what, this kid, he's been in school for seven years. We're going to give him another shot here. <laughs> he can still change his ways at 21. <laughs> Very succinctly, puts himself as a leader of the group really fast. So that, that's what I wanted to say about Tony Baker's character, that he comes in and he's just a terror, and he's allowed to be a terror at the school. His teacher, Miss Arlene Williams, she sees some good in him. But what I actually think is I think she's attracted to him. I mean, that, I thought that, and then I also thought, well, maybe to her... She actually sees the the cop, the good guy. I, I think just like true. I kind of felt my Steve Bentley. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he did the same because he kept trying to get him. Hey, you want to come join us? Like he saw his goodness kind of came through. But I also think you're you are on that she might have been attracted to him a little bit because he's about her age. Yeah, exactly <laughs> for one thing, and she invites him over. Yes. She she wants to try to get him. She wants to try to find out what's going on. So she says, come to my house for tea. Yeah, nothing a teacher would do in that. In fact, when he... I, I even wonder at that time. I made a note of that. Even at that time, I don't think teachers, it would have been acceptable to invite a young hood over to your house for tea. No, and even when her car breaks down, and at first I thought he had something to do with it, and then I realized later on, no, it's it's just part of the plot. Her car breaks down, and he offers her a ride home, and he puts his armor... Like, he doesn't need to act anymore. They're off school grounds. He doesn't have to say, hey, I'm undercover cop, but he portrays this badass character, and he puts his arm around her. And says, let's go get a beer. And there is some flirtatious back and forth and I thought, oh my gosh, like this movie is going to go in a bunch of different directions. <laughs> His aunt, Mamie Van Dorn, is constantly trying to come on to him and get him into bed. Let's talk about that character. 
Because when we first meet her, he comes home from school, and you do see that his behavior when he gets into the house is slightly different. He tones it down. He tones it down. He gets milk. He doesn't go to the bar where she obviously spends a lot of time because she likes to drink. He even says, next time, mix a little coffee in with your brandy. And she is extremely sexually aggressive with him. Kisses him on the, and you're and you right now are believing that this is his aunt, and I don't know what kind of family he has, yes. and you don't know he's an undercover cop, and, he, and she kisses him right on the lips, and he just like backs off. I always figured it must be an aunt by marriage. I, I <laughs> hope so. Exactly. <laughs> but even if that was the case, it was widely inappropriate. Whoa! And at the same time, it's every every young man's dream. Exactly. She's to have maybe maybe Van Dorn oh. in a robe. She's kissy in the kitchen. She is gorgeous. And then later on. We see that same behavior repeat itself where he walks in and he's trying to get out of her grasp and she follows him up to the room and she's like, you can go ahead and change. I will look. And of course she looks and then she lays on his bed, kicks her legs back and forth and everything like that and is really pushing him. This is where you think like, well, he must be really a good guy because he's not touching this woman who's clearly throwing herself at him. I mean, he's a better man than me. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't serve as a foil. She doesn't really serve a purpose except like, hey, we have Mammy Vandora in this movie and she's going to walk around all sultry and sexy. Was this her debut? Was she Mamie Van Dorn at this point? I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, she had she was, was she, she had made some movies before. Okay, this. so she was kind of a thing at yeah. the time. We do find out though, she's part of the undercover scheme. We find out that when when Tony goes to meet the police chief to talk about the sting operation, the chief addresses her and says, "How is Gwen?" And he's like, "He's play- she's really playing the role." tough or something along those lines and you think if she's part of it why are they putting this on in the house if she's just and you made a point and this might be it but we we get no explanation other than how is she we know that the cop knows about her maybe she got in some trouble and this is her way to get out of it is to help be an informant or you know to assist the police in some way but we're never told she is just comes off as the aunt who wants to bang her nephew. Exactly. <laughs> In fact, when Arlene, the teacher, shows up at one time. One second. Did you want another one? Sure. Well, this is a good time for a break to have another beer. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. So we're on to our number two. The Great Divide American Lager. Gwen probably had a lot of these. She's either drinking or going to the bar. That's <laughs> just constant with her. It's a pretty dark scene near the end when J.I. and Juki show up and smack her around. And Arlene. Yeah. Right? Both of them. And Joan, we physically see the aunt, Mamie Van Dorn, and Arlene getting roughed up. And then they we see afterwards sort of the effects of that. So, I mean, there are moments in this movie where you just go, oh, wow, that's... Wasn't what I was expecting. Yeah, that where it's going. I was I was kind of just laughing at this movie, and now you just did that. Why yeah. did you have to go do that? When Arlene did visit Gwen for the first time, Gwen feels her territory is being impeded on because she's after Tony, and she makes this statement saying he's practically a grown man, he's healthy and normal, full of fun, and she basically lives. You never rode a hot rod or a late date in the second balcony. <laughs> And, of course, Arlene's like, woohoo! Yeah. Oh, my goodness! And, <laughs> who, who are you, you yeah. uncouth person? <laughs> yes. And she, I think 
And when goes, smoking and drinking at the time. Yeah, and she's just looking at her. That, no, I wrote that line down too. That's that's awesome. And then she looks at her and she goes, "Maybe you haven't. Exactly, <laughs> you haven't lived. You're, just, you're missing out, Arlene." And those catchphrases like riding a hot rod or a a, a late date in the it's second balcony. You know, this is code for sex at that time because they can't yeah. say it in this movie. Let's talk about the lectures on drugs in this movie. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI <laughs> had some money behind this because there's a scene somewhat early in the film where the police chief is talking to the faculty and staff of the of the school and he's talking about, oh, marijuana is it's it's a plague on society and, and Arlene makes point, she goes, Aren't you overreacting a little bit? And he goes there was a marijuana cigarette found in your classroom. And he goes, they, they refer to it as Mary Jane pot, weed, or tea. And he said, you'll never hear them say, let's smoke a marijuana cigarette. They'll say, let's turn on or let's blast a joint. And they do say it like that. They say it like cheesy newsmen from a movie. This is very much a PSA about watch out. Your kids, if you catch them with a marijuana cigarette... The next thing they're going to have is track marks on their arms. <laughs> I didn't know this. I never would have touched marijuana if I knew that was the case. <laughs> it's a gateway drug. <laughs> Good thing we just sit around drinking harmless beer. Exactly. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> and what do you think about Tony's Baker's that he wants to buy drugs? Because everything is like, hey, do you know where I could graze on some grass? <laughs> Which is a great line. <laughs> Graze on some grass. I like that. And he's always pulling out a huge wad of money. And he makes sure everybody sees it. He looks over his shoulder to make sure that some square kids see he has a fat wad of cash. And he does. He basically announces, might as well have had a t-shirt and a hat that said, want to deal drugs. Exactly. You know? Because at, at first he's like, you know, I'm trying to score. I'm trying to score. And then... There's, he's sent to Juki, yeah. and Juki's like, oh, I've got, I've got a few joints, yeah. and he's like, What? I don't want that. Yeah. I want more. Yeah. Well, Five you're gonna, pounds. you're gonna meet the guy. Yeah. He meets. They do the drag race, yeah. which, which is just great. I, I thought the drag race was hilarious. First of all, because Michael, the way they were dressed, like Ji, their outfits were hilarious, and and Michael Landon, they they had big banners for like the Rangers and the Wheelers and Dealers. I don't know if that was common back then, but they're doing the drag race. And Tony's got this giant car. And I mean, this for some reason, this is such a small thing. But Joan demands she wants to ride in the race. Oh, she likes it. She likes it. But, <laughs> I think it revs her all, engine. <laughs> all, I kept, all I kept thinking was, if nothing else, it's just weight you don't need. She's there to show how much of a weed head she is because she's out of control. Her inhibitions are gone because yeah. she's just a stoner. And so she's crazy. <laughs> yes, and part of that is... There's these small scenes where it shows what happens when you're so addicted to getting a, a stick <laughs> that you're willing to commit fraud on your dad's credit card. <laughs> is that what is that what they were doing? That's what they were doing was she had this deal at this dress shop where she would go in and even though the dress was fifty dollars, they charge her dad's account. $75 and they'd split that 25 difference between the salesperson and her so she could buy her weed. <laughs> and then they that they shorted her. Yeah. Because they're like, go tell your dad. Yeah. <laughs> You're a criminal. <laughs> You're committing fraud. <laughs> she needed a stick. But 
There is also a scene at Joan's house that I think you wanted to talk about. Yes. That, I, that shows addiction on different levels. Yes. Because Joan is sort of, oh, I need weed. I need a stick, man. There's two scenes that I think are, one, they're trying to put these scenes in to get teens' attention or watch this movie. One is that swimming pool scene serves a couple levels. One, it shows addiction because there's clearly a woman there who is going through withdrawals from heroin. Two, it's another hint on this whole path that Tony Baker is not a bad guy. Because when this woman goes in complete withdrawals, after people think it's funny to throw her in the pool when she doesn't want to, <laughs> another sign of sexual harassment at the time. Different time. Different time. It was a way different time because she was she was screaming, no, 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 yeah. and Juki just is being a cat. Yeah. And he helps her, brings her in, and notices the tracks on her arm. So he brings her from the pool into the house, and he basically says something like, you know, you flake around with the weed, you end up on the hard stuff. <laughs> it's giving you hints that Tony is not who he seems. It, it solidifies the relationship between him and Joan. And I don't know why he needs that relationship at all. It's just that he's trying to show like he's the tough guy that can take J.I.'s girl. And I'm going to talk about J.I. as a boyfriend in a second. But <laughs> um, he, takes, he takes J.I.'s girl and they kiss for the first time, solidifying their relationship. But also in terms of a team party, the opening sw- scene of that swimming pool scene is on a woman's derriere. <laughs> Her butt is the opening scene. And I think they're doing it a little just to attract, like, hey, we th- during this time period, we can't be overly sexual, but we're going to show you, like, you know, a swim party with girls in their bathing suits and young men with their shirt off. You can't you can't have just an anti-drug movie. Yes. You got to have the... Because kids will just go, you're lame, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to go blast a joint. Yeah. I'm not going to watch you this gotta lame movie. You got to have something movie. that brings them in, and that will always, you know, put women in bathing suits and... Have their butts. Exactly. And it does the same thing when they finally go to this jazz club. Um, there's a, Everybody's up and dancing. And the film at first is all shot at the crotch level. Yeah. So you see women and men's front and back crotch shots for the opening scene at the jazz club. And I thought, I know why they shot it that way. To entice the teens to look up on the screen for a second and come and see this movie. <laughs> Can we talk about J.I. as a boyfriend for a second? I, it's hard to call him that. That's... <laughs> He just doesn't care. He doesn't care that she goes away. He just sort of lets her go without so much as a, hey, why? And then I, I want to say what you are you want to talk about is when she's trying to get a, a stick. Yes. And she needs something from him. And his reaction is not what you would think of as a boyfriend. No. It, it makes you think, I understand why she left him. Yeah, it, exactly what you're saying where um, he's like, why is this my problem? <laughs> Yeah, like, go get your own money. He's like, stop hassling me with that. You're a drag. And she says something like, what, do you want me to go out and steal? And he's like, well, there you go. I I knew you'd come up with an idea. And then he's just basically, I think, says something like, leave me alone. Yes. Like, stop hassling me with your problems and walks away. Worst boyfriend ever. (laughs) I mean. I mean, that's why she went for Tony. (laughs) At least he paid attention to her. Yeah. And then he, like, will will go over and talk to them at the club and just, you know, like, everything's cool. It's just business. <laughs> exactly. But he ends up being the middleman that's going to get Tony to the big time. Because he's got a hundred joints. And Tony's like, I want more than a hundred joints. And he's like, this is all I got. And then he tries to pull a little thing on him where he says it's 75 cents a joint. and Or first he tries to sell him for a dollar. And Tony says, 
well, that's retail, man. I got to make money. He said, I just wanted to see if you were cool. Yeah. If you're on the know or something. There's some math in this movie. Yeah, there is. <laughs> because then Tony like says, he says, all right, it's not going to be a dollar. It's going to be 75 cents. And he goes, whoa, so I thought it was, I usually pay 65. Tony makes it clear to him again. Over and over, he makes it clear. I want bigger things. I want like five pounds of weed. And J.I. says, I'll see if I can talk to my guy. Lo and behold, Tony and Joan are at the club where Joan is going to fire up a stick. (laughs) And he's like, what are you doing? We just, they got arrested at the drag race. He's like, what are you, he's like, she's really crazy. He's, she's the weed. Blazing up in public. On the pot. At a beatnik jazz club. That's (laughs) where all kids go. (laughs) Exactly. There wasn't one beret in that whole beatnik jazz club. Well, Or the tiny glasses. (laughs) Do we want to stop right then and talk about the great poem that's done at this jazz club? Oh, boy. Thank you. Thank you. Tomorrow's a drag, man. (laughs) At the club, this very attractive woman walks up and delivers a very beatnik-type poem. The repeated line is, Tomorrow's a drag, man. I had a canary, and then I got a cat that ate the canary, and I got the dog that ate the cat that ate the canary. Tomorrow's a drag, man. Her name is Philippa Fallon. She didn't do a whole heck of a lot. But what's interesting is this whole poem is written by a guy who has a small part in the movie. He ends up being the date of Tony's aunt. Later in the movie, he's a drunk guy. His name is Bill O'Flair. If you look it up on IMDb, he's listed as Charlie O'Flair. At no point is his name Charlie. She keeps calling him Billy Boy when she remembers his name. But he's this character. He's an actor who had a really weird, interesting life. His name is Mel Wells. And he wrote the poem. I don't know why he ended up writing it. But he had this kind of interesting career. But you can go online and people have that clip of that poem. It was all over YouTube, and it's it's just brilliant. It was something, like, I watched it the first time, and I rewound it to watch it again, because there was just something about that whole thing, her delivery. I really wanted her to have written the poem. Yes. I wanted her to be a poet that did this. It was almost a drag man when I found out that some bit actor <laughs> wrote it, and it wasn't Philippa Fallon. That scene is perfect. It's funny. Like, we laugh at it now. It's a time capsule. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a, exactly. Yeah, the only difference being that the beatniks were very overwhelmingly male and yeah. masculine, so it made it a little more interesting to me that it was a woman delivering the this quintessential... Beat poem. Yes. And and it was. it's also interesting because the piano player in this jazz quartet ends up being none other than... Mr. A. <laughs> and Mr. A... <laughs> is the big wig. He's the main drug guy in this little town. There's a heck of a lot going on in this town. No. <laughs> I mean, this is like a small town in California, right? No, it's supposed to be in it's supposed to be in Illinois. It's supposed to cuz he transferred from North Chicago, but I have I have no idea. <laughs> I thought it was for some reason I thought it was California because I swear there are palm trees throughout the movie. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> on that beat poem. There's a movie with Michael Myers, So I Married an Axe Murderer. At the very beginning, he delivers a very beat poem. And I, I want to believe that he saw this movie because his delivery reminds me of this movie. And Mr. A is played by a actor named Jackie Coogan. He was a character actor at a time, but he had a long run on Adam's family as Uncle Fester. <laughs> 
that. But he plays your cool quintessential. He has sunglasses during the day while he's playing In, inside, the keys. Yes. When he when he meets Tony for the first time, J.I. goes to the club. Tony's there with Joan. J.I. comes in, turns a chair around, sits on it backwards, doesn't care that his ex is right there with Tony, and he says, hey, you got five minutes. They get in the car with Bix, who is Mr. A's right-hand man, and if I could, the first first little exchange with Bix, if I may, indulge me, is classic, because Bix is this square-looking white dude, looks like he would be the host of a game show. J.I. introduces Tony to him, and Bix says, what are you picking up on, man? And Tony says... Whatever you're putting out, I'm just trying to play it cool. And Bix responds with, That's the most, man. Always play it cool. Bix likes it cool. (laughs) I don't don't know what the point of that is. This movie time capsule, the lingo that's used. Because at first, it bombards you. I'm like, what are they saying half the time? (laughs) I mean, during during J.I.'s speech about Columbus, I, I understood Columbus... The words, it was this word salad that once in a while I go, I think I know what that means. He's talking about Columbus, so I can infer a lot of things. But it is just, and then Bix picks up a phone. So like the electric razor with the cord, it's like there's this phone in a car, which is probably at the time you go, oh, wow, who has a phone in the car? How does that even work? So they go to meet Mr. A. And this is an interesting thing because J.I. says at one point, he never touches alcohol says, I don't touch the stuff. It's bad for a ball player. So they go to meet Mr. A. They get in Mr. A's office. He beelines for the bar to, to pour himself a drink. And Mr. A says, hey, stop that. That stuff's terrible for you. I hate alcohol. I hate it. My brain immediately thought, why do you have a bar in your office if you hate alcohol that much? And it's so, such a terrible thing. But he also has heroin in his office, too. I think it's just a test for people. Because <laughs> he clearly says, I don't touch any of this stuff. And you'll never be a big dealer like me if you indulge. I'm just here for the cash and the money. I should back up really quick. Because when J.I. says we're going to go meet Mr. A, Tony goes, I got to go buy some cigarillos. That's when we find out that Tony is not... A a real no-good Nick. He's undercover or something. He goes into the bathroom, and the guy, I don't know, like the Mater D or something. He's also undercover at the club. He follows him in, and they have an exchange where he says, I'm going to go meet the big man. And the, the undercover cop goes, do you have your tools? And you think, well, what are these tools he's talking about? Well, it's a rubber ball in his pocket. He has to prove his bona fides. Yes. So Mr. A pulls out this heroin, and they're going to shoot up. And he tells Tony, hey... You shoot up, and then I'll shoot up. You know, then we'll both be shooting up. It's cool. And Tony injects it into the rubber ball. I don't know how that was supposed to work because it, the only way it worked was because J.I. burst into the room yes. suddenly. And when they turned to talk to him, yeah. that's when Tony shot the stuff. It was in the crook of yeah. his elbow there, and he shoots it into the ball. I don't know how that was supposed to work otherwise because if they're watching him... Where does he gonna put yeah. the ball? I mean, that didn't make any sense no. whatsoever. It was movie magic. It was total movie <laughs> magic, and so it's a Mr. A's testing him, and he's like, "I had a you know look at your background. You're good people." He's like, "He got busted for heroin," and I, I don't again, I don't know why he he talks so poorly about people who use heroin that they can't be trusted. They've got the young woman Doris who was from the pool party. From the pool party, she's there in another room screaming and crying she's going through terrible withdrawals he basically flat out says i you know i've been trying to get her to take a fix and then i'm gonna send her with some girls upstate 
And it's clear to me that he was basically going to just say, you're, you're going to be a prostitute for yes. me now. Nowadays, <laughs> it's, it's quite clear what he meant. I don't know if back then it might have been a little misunderstood, <laughs> but it's yeah. quite clear now. Yeah, he had just terrible things in mind for Doris's future. Yes. <laughs> he was not looking out in her best interest, even though he spoke sort of kindly and yeah. about her. So Tony's whacked on heroin now. He's out of it on H, supposedly, yeah. wink, wink. And he says, I want a half a kilo. And Mr. A says, well, you know, that's a lot. It's going to cost you four big ones. And he says, that's a high cost of living, man. <laughs> Russ Talon does some really good heroin acting. Yes, he does. He's really just like, whoa, man. And then Bix says, I'm going to take you back to your car. <laughs> Let you drive off. <laughs> Which I kind of love. It's just, just all these... This place is all over the they're all over the place. There's no responsibility whatsoever. Yeah. If we look at this movie through a lens of like drugs are bad. They're trying to show that Mr. A, he's just there for money. He doesn't care. He himself is not taking drugs. So if you're taking drugs, you gotta realize like, oh, the people are supplying you, they think it's bad as well. And they don't touch the stuff. They just wanna get you hooked for your money. It's a bad scene. It's a man. bad scene. <laughs> it's a drag, man. <laughs> So after Bix takes him back to his car, we definitely find out Tony's working with the cops. Yeah. He meets the chief of police. That's when we find out. Maybe Van Doren's in on it. Everything comes clean. He wore a wire. And this is a very <laughs> odd scene. And we're closing at the end of the movie. He goes back after that meeting and walks in his house with the lights a, off. He's not wearing a wire. <laughs> he's wearing tape, like a huge tape recorder, which I can't figure where he had on his body. He's so thin. He's, he's so thin. He's not wearing baggy clothes. No. He doesn't wear a baggy shirt from time to yeah. time. They don't even have any. One of those old cassette players yes. that would sit flat and they would use it sure. like in a, you'd watch it in a movie and they'd be like, a cop would be yeah. like, we're recording this. It's, it's this giant, like... <laughs> Six inch wide. And he plays it in the dark in his room. And Joan's there. And she hears it. And she starts asking questions. Like, hey, listen, Joan. Like, I'm going to go make this buy. He's like, you didn't hear anything. This is nothing. Stuff from Chicago. Stuff from Chicago. Exactly. That's what he says. Because this is what I do. I come home. I sit in the dark. And I listen to recordings I I made in Chicago. It was like right after I made them. That's a red flag. That's when Joan's like, I got to get out of here. This guy's a psycho. But that had to be like a plot point where all of a sudden you're like, what? Again, like Joan's, you know, this is also about sexuality. Because Joan's laying there in a in the dark in his bed giggling and, and yeah. she's going through reefer with yeah, she needs, exactly she needs, she needs a, a stick <laughs> she needs a stick a reefer she needs a blast so everything is coming together Jones in his bedroom he has this recording he's gonna go and make his buy they agree that they're, they'll deliver him the drugs tonight he realized like oh I have to deal with Joan she's acting wonky because she's going through reefer madness <laughs> So he calls Arlene to come over in the middle of the night. And he's been nothing but horrible to her. <laughs> and she's like, well, okay. At first you don't think, but she shows up. She's literally in bed. She says, I'm in bed. Yeah. And she is literally in bed. So at one point you have all the three blondes in his bedroom. Which is also a very odd scene where all these women have some sort of attraction to him. But he's the good guy. I have to go and finish my police duties. He leaves and he's going to go back to the club. But you mentioned before, J.I. and his hoodlum friend show up. Juki. Juki. We get zero explanation why they popped in. Did Joan call J.I. and say, oh, I heard this. They walk in the house. They just, Arlene is there with Joan. Joan's like, oh, she's climbing the wall. She's like, there's got to be a joint. I'm going to blast. 
And then all of a sudden, J.I. and his buddy go into the house and then go back to the bedroom, walk in unannounced. Like, what's going on here, man? Jones spills the beans that about Mr. A in the recording. She says Mr. A's name and J.I.'s like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean, Mr. A? She spills the beans on Tony's recording and J.I. wants some more information. Then Mamie Van Dorn wanders in drunk, (laughs) wielding a bottle. And J.I. and his buddy beat up uh, Mamie Van Dorn and Arlene. And most likely Jones slaps her, slap him around. And that was just another moment where you pull back and you go, I'm like, I just wanted to laugh at this movie. And you're you're really... It takes a sideways turn right there. Harshing my mellow here, man. (laughs) After that unpleasant ordeal... We're at the club. Yeah, because Tony's at the club already. Yeah. Because J.I. is going to call the club in the middle of Tony's deal. Tony's playing it cool. Yeah. That's the most, man. And he's about, <laughs> he is about to get his drugs. No doubt the police are going to rush in. So Bix takes a call at the club. J.I.'s calling from Gwen's house. And now Bix comes in in the middle of the deal between Mr. A and Tony. And whispers in Mr. A's ear. And then Mr. A pulls out a gun. And then havoc ensues. And it's the climax of the movie. Which, which is, it's totally worth pointing out. Quinn, who is the other, the undercover cop at the club. The waiter. Who, the Char- waiter D. Charlie Chaplin Jr., by the way. Interesting. I'm assuming yeah. it's Charlie Chaplin's son. Quinn knows that something's up. And the police have done a really poor job of this. Because <laughs> it's just Tony... And Quinn. That's it. So Quinn goes up to Steve Bentley. <laughs> he says, Chief Burrell says I can count on you guys. Yeah. So, so basically in that moment, he, he practically deputizes the Rangers, <laughs> takes some teenagers, the teenage baseball team, yeah. and, and says, are you going to help? Can you help us with yeah. this? Fight this, this drug cartel. That's the middle of our city. <laughs> it happens all the time. And, and he's like, yeah, what do you need? What do you need? He's like, this is what we need. We got this going on. <laughs> and they do, and they do a great job. Mr. A says, Bix, go tell the, the band to play really loud so I can shoot Tony in peace. And then Tony throws the heroin in his face, which was another thing I thought, if you had a whole bunch of heroin thrown in your face, you no doubt would probably breathe some in, and that might have a, a deleterious effect on you. That's neither here nor yeah. there. Because then, like you said, it's a Donnybrook. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fisticuffs. Yes. The Rangers are fighting everybody. <laughs> And Tony and Mr. A are going at it. It's just a a pretty awesome fight. Of course, the good guys win. Absolutely. And the movie moves back to, as you you point out, a anti-drug message. We're looking down from above on Tony's car. Tony's driving. Joan's in the middle and Arlene's in the passenger seat. And there's a voiceover saying that Bix and Mr. A are doing... Five to life. Why it's five to life? I know they kept they repeat that a few times. Like it's five to life. That's a that's a big 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 error. Yes, it's like five years or life. Ji and the rest of his like forty year old gang are in juvenile detention, and Joan once again confines her smoking to ordinary cigarettes, and then. Throughout the movie, Gwen, Mamie Van Doren's character, keeps talking about how her husband is out of town on business. And we find out at the end, she's in the back seat with a man, and Gwen's happy now because her husband is home. And she's making out with her husband. And, 
Absolutely. Making out in the back seat and she's happy. And I, oh, you know, I just kept thinking, I don't know how happy her husband is going to be because it, from what we understand, she's basically been drunk and sleeping with the whole town, <laughs> the, the proverbial town bicycle while he's gone. So, I mean, this happiness could be fleeting yes. when, when everybody's like, hey, yeah, hey. Gwen, good to Gwen. see you. Why are all these guys making eyes at you? So, so yeah, then Jerry Lee Lewis drives back through the campus trying to shill more, more, more albums of bargain rates. Putting because that's what it, I think the sign says: you can get it cheap, get the records cheaper from him. And I'm like, you're just putting record stores out of business because you're undercutting them, Jerry Lee Lewis, you bastard. Oh. So I mean, here's the thing: do you recommend this movie? I do, and I recommend it for a couple reasons. One. If you want a time capsule of great beatnik 50s slang language, the Christopher Columbus scene done in beat slang, and then the beatnik poem, the, it's a drag, is excellent. Tomorrow's a drag, man. <laughs> and also, I think if you're, look, if you're interested in B-movies and you want to see a B-movie that was made that... Brings in all this team subgenre B movies that remain time. There is rock and roll music with Jerry Lee Lewis. There is a major car race that goes on, which I was surprised that more kids didn't die at the car race. Like when I watch it, they're standing in the road. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's, there's melodrama. There's juvenile delinquency because this is clearly, as Michael said, this is an anti-drug movie. It was fun watching. I think one sad point being an anti-drug movie. John Drew Barrymore, who played J.I., he is John Barrymore's son, Drew Barrymore's dad, and born into an acting family. And his career was Shanghai because he couldn't deal with drugs and just being like, you see his character here and you think, oh, that's how he's like. No, he was a little out of control. Um, and I'm Google? pulling this from Wikipedia and IMD and a couple other sites about his history. And, you know, you could see, like, hey, what drugs really could could do to you if you can't control it? Because <laughs> he was a good-looking guy. Oh, oh, Good-looking yeah, I mean, guy. He was. This good. whole cast is good-looking. Yeah, you're <laughs> Maybe right. Mr. A. Mr. A. <laughs> Jackie Coogan. And he worked it. Everyone's, like, everyone's got a type. Yes. You know? it's like, no, he's a good-looking guy. He actually had a presence. Yeah. Like, J.I. had a, had a presence in yeah. on camera. So, no, that is sad. And, I mean, I would recommend looking at a time now where, you know, you see marijuana is legalized. Yes. Different in, time, in yeah. many areas, and at some point, I'll probably legal federally. But you look back at how attitudes have changed from that point to when we were young was much different. The fear, the propaganda, the yes. sensationalism of it is pretty fascinating because when you watch this, remember. This wasn't played for laughs. Yes. <laughs> this, this wasn't goofy. This this was a straight take on hey, trying to get people to go. Look what's happening. This is happening in our world. We need to stop it. It's like the war on drugs just extended from this these attitudes. What's crazy is that it's clearly that it's a message to the young kids who amount to basically the baby boomers because when this came out, saying drugs are bad. But at the same time, we have to sell this movie to teenagers. So we're going to put some rock and roll music. We're going to put a whole bunch 
of sexuality into this movie. It's, it's the Jesus Christ superstar <laughs> of, of drug. It's like, we're going to try to make religion. Yeah. Kids get into religion. Yeah. So we're going to have car races. We're going to have a, a lot of sexuality from Mammy Van Doren to bathing suits to dance scenes. We're going to have rock and roll music. And we're going to have Russ Tamblyn. Yes. <laughs> and I'm going to say... It failed miserably when you consider 1958 yes. and what happened in the next exactly. 10 to 12 years. I'd say you, you missed it. I think the wild one beat you. Yes. <laughs> because the kids did not go, wow, I am terrified by the marijuana. No, they. I think the kids all said, let's smoke a marijuana yeah. cigarette. Like, I'm sure after this, people were saying, well, I think I've there's some more lingo I could use. I'm going to start talking about blasting a joint all the time. I've gone through two cans of Great Divide American Lager. This really is a tasty beer. Great Divide is pretty widely distributed. You okay. should be able to find this. Yeah, I, I we kind of didn't talk enough about it. No, like we it, got caught up in Mamie Van Dorn. Yes, but I would assume that at the car race, all the car clubs were probably drinking something very similar to this. Once again, at the time, drinking this before the racing car. Absolutely. Probably drinking it while they were racing. Exactly. I bet there was an open beer in the car. It wouldn't shock me. Different time. Is it a different time? We said, we've been saying that yeah. a lot, a different time. No, this, this is a delicious beer if you're looking. I mean, this would be something if you're going to a game tailgating. This, it's just a really nice daytime, easy drinking, light. Fire up the grill, and you're good to go. Absolutely. Nice and cold. I'm sure... Mike Wilson, at the end of this, pulled over with his police buddies, and they cracked open a couple beers and celebrated a case well done. <laughs> I'm telling you, if they did, it was a beer exactly like this. That is my guess. And so, before we wrap up, you, you would, would you recommend this movie? You know, I would. I think in that, for the time capsule effect, I'm not going to repeat what you said. As I said, looking back and going, this is how drugs were viewed seriously. You know, again, you can't look back and go, they're making a comedy. This was serious. To watch the evolution of how we look at things. It's harmless fun. It is kind of silly looking back on it. You know, sadly, the things you said about Barrymore were, were quite true. I, I would recommend it. I wouldn't say, you know, you have to see this. But yeah, there are reasons to watch this. If nothing else, you could you could play a great drinking game. Yes. With with, with this, I mean, you could, so many different things. How many times maybe Van Dorn is inappropriate with her nephew? Um, you know, I wouldn't say like anytime someone uses beatnik slang because you would be just cross-eyed twenty minutes into the movie. But you could find certain phrases maybe and say, "Have a drink." It's like it would be kind of fun to watch with, with, with a group of friends and just go, wow, times have changed. You know, no, nobody's wearing a suit and tie to school anymore. Boy, where did we go wrong? <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's wrap it up. This is Beer and Be Movies. I'm Jason. I'm Michael. Your Honor, in this case, the state waves trial of the defendant, Ralph White. It is convinced that he is hopelessly and incurably insane. Condition caused by the drug marijuana to which he was addicted. It is recommended, Your Honor, that the defendant be placed at an institution for the criminally insane for the rest of his natural life. Don't try Tony's giggle water, let's try a giggle weed. <laughs>